If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Between 1912 and 1923, Nearly 300 of Ireland's grandest country houses were targeted by arsonists and reduced to ash and rubble. But why? As Professor Terence Dooley reveals in his book, Burning the Big House, these stately homes have become embroiled in complex disputes over land and imperialism, caught up in the violence of revolution and civil war. I spoke to Terry to find out more. And just to let you know, we had some issues with Terry's end of the recording, so apologies if the sound quality of this episode isn't up to our usual standard. You've been looking at the burning of stately homes in Ireland's revolutionary period in the early 20th century. Just to start us off, how many stately homes are we talking about here? How many big houses were burned in the early 20th century in Ireland? During the, what's known as the revolutionary period in, in, in Ireland, Ellie, there were approximately 300 big houses, and that's a term that's rather unique to Ireland, country houses, uh, born between 1920 and 1923. And this is the period of the War of Independence from 1920 to 21, followed by the Civil War from 1922 to 1923. Now, the revolutionary period can be divided up into the War of Independence, 1920 to 21, and the Civil War, 1922 to 23. And in 1921 to 22, houses are burned for various reasons. First of all, because there are rumours that they're going to be commandeered by the British forces, or in fact they are commandeered by the British forces and used as temporary barracks. So the IRA see them as legitimate targets to be uh, destroyed to prevent this happening. Uh, Secondly, because they are the physical symbols of colonialism um, on, on, the, on the landscape and their owners are supporters of the British establishment and houses are, are, are sometimes born because uh, their owners are suspected of colluding with um, the, the, the British army or the British forces or because they are used as counter-reprisals um, and burned in retribution for example for the burning of towns and villages and farmhouses and so on by the crown forces the black and tans and the auxiliaries during the civil war 
considerably more houses are burned than were burned during the War of Independence, uh, partly because of the breakdown in law and order, partly because of an escalation in agrarianism. Also, uh, houses are burned in the Civil War because they have been taken over by the anti-Treatyites and they're burned then as they evacuate them. Now, there's no discernible military logic to this anti-Treatyite strategy, but there's an argument to be made that civil war conditions continue to provide further opportunity for Republicans to rid the countryside of the physical reminders of the colonizer. Finally, houses are burned by anti-Treatyites in reprisal for the execution of their comrades. And these houses, uh, many of them are, many of them belong to the old landed class or the aristocracy who have become senators in the new free state government. So they become again targets as, as reprisals. And what's the historical background of all of this that we need to understand in order to make sense of these burnings? Well, first of all, I mean, if context is very is very important. And the title of the book is Burning the Big House, the Story of the Country House in War and Revolution. Now, war is fairly straightforward. I mean, it refers to the First World War, 1914 to 18 which, of course, is regarded as a major, major watershed in the history of aristocracies across Europe. Uh, revolution requires a little more unpacking here. As early as 1881, I mean, Lord Dufferin, who was one of the leading aristocrats in the north of Ireland, wrote to a friend of his and he said that Irish landlords had become the victims of a revolution. Now, what effectively he was talking about was the dramatic impact that global agricultural recession from the late 1870s, uh, which in Ireland led to the establishment of a mass movement, the Land League or the Irish National Land League, in response to landlordism, took root in 1879. And it drew its leadership from rural alliance of large farmers who were predominantly Roman Catholic, while their landlords were predominantly Protestant. And these farmers were backed up by their clergy and their townsmen. And at first, their initial aim was to uh, try to protect tenants from the consequences of agricultural depression by ensuring that rent levels remained affordable. But what ensued was a land war from 1879 to 81, which was the first phase, but actually which dragged on for considerably longer. And what do you mean by a land war? First of all, tenants demanded through the Irish National Land League a reduction in rent from their landlords. Some landlords would have granted the abatements or the reductions, others procrastinated, others downright refused to do so. So tenants went on strike. Landlords then subsequently evicted their tenants. Uh, rural Ireland became particularly violent. In, in, in the period 1879 to 81, you have thousands of agrarian-related crimes being committed, including 17 murders per year. And, you know, this was unprecedented in living memory. And ultimately, the British government stepped in to try to sort this problem out by introducing a land act in 1881. The act set up the Irish Land Commission, which in turn set up courts to adjudicate unfair rents. And in a politically volatile climate like we had between 1879 and 81, fair rents invariably came to mean lower rents. So you had landlords who even before this were heavily indebted. They now found their rents being reduced by about 
20 to 21 percent. They therefore found themselves in a situation by the end of the 19th century that they were so heavily indebted that they wanted to rid themselves of their landed estates if the proper mechanisms were put in place. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it was that simultaneously from the 1880s, you had the rise of the nationalist home rule movement in Ireland that was demanding Irish independence. The rise of the home rule movement severely compromised the landed class sphere of political influence, with the result that you had a political revolution of some magnitude between the 1880s and the turn of the century. And landlords were ousted from political power at both national level and at local government level, uh, particularly after the passing of the Local Government Ireland Act in 1898. You had a social revolution on on one hand, and you had a political revolution on the other hand. Mm. So landlords were in a, or the aristocracy were in a particularly vulnerable position in that respect at the outbreak of the Great War in 1914. So when we do get to the outbreak of of the war, you say that landlords were vulnerable, but how would they have been viewed by local communities? See, that, that's a very interesting question, right? And it's one that, again, requires a great deal of unpacking. Because during the land war era itself, I mean, landlords were excoriated from public platforms um, uh, and and by extension then, uh, their big houses were represented as the symbols of colonial uh, decadence and opulence practiced amidst uh, economic deprivation and so on. But the other side of it is that, I mean, in many communities, we have to try to, to... unearth and understand more clearly the significance, the economic significance of the big house in those communities. I mean, how many landlords actually left Ireland, closed up their houses after the passing of the 1903 Land Act? But nobody has mapped this to date. Um, But the anecdotal evidence, when you look at travellers' reports and memoirs and so on, people passing through various different counties, from Mayo to to, to County Monaghan. They're talking about houses that have been abandoned and houses that are now derelict and so on. And in 1906, the government produced um, a return of untended lands in Ireland that marked out mansions on these lands as well. And it's it's, uh, mapped about 1,600, I think, mansions in existence in Ireland at that time. Now, that suggests that an awful lot of houses had, in fact, been abandoned uh, or that they were emptied because in the 19th century, there were probably around 3,500 or 4,000 of these houses. But suffice to say, still, in very many parishes, towns, villages uh, in Ireland, places like Maynooth or Abbey Leaks, Westport, Rakari, Strokestown, Burr, and so on, the bonds between the aristocratic families and the wider local community were far from sundered or dissolved by uh, the land war or the breakup of the estates because a resident aristocracy continued to be important to the local community. And after they had sold their estates, they had money to invest. Now, they didn't, they didn't invest it in Ireland, which was rather unfortunate, but they did become progressive farmers, many of them. They became supporters of the cooperative movement. They developed new income streams on their domains. So they provided, in other words, extensive local employment. 
And again, I think you begin to see the evidence of the importance of that during the revolutionary period when, in fact, so many houses are not burned and local communities are making representation to uh, the new government to see if something can be done to protect what is essentially their their livelihoods. So it's a very complex picture. So how do we move from this antagonism between aristocracy and the local community, but also a kind of interdependency into a period where big houses are actively targeted and burnt. That return of 1906 showed that the landed elite still retained about 2.6 million acres of domain and untended lands. Now, they were therefore holding this land at the expense of land-hungry smallholders. So you're looking at an economy that is very much based on, on, on agriculture, right? And access to land is paramount. Uh, for people, not just as a means of obviously making a living, but also as a means of of, of, of acquiring a social status. So, uh, again, the point I suppose I want to make here is that despite the success of the Land Acts, there remains uh, a very real and very vibrant land question in Ireland. And that comes to the fore once again during uh, the Great War about 1917 or so, with the growth of uh, Republican Sinn Féin, they begin to exploit the land question once again in the same way that constitutional politicians had done so in the 1880s. They began to call for the breakup of these uh, untended estates, um, and they begin to effectively promise young men who join in the revolutionary movement that when the revolution is over, there will be this uh, this acquisition and redistribution of lands. So for that reason, you know, agrarian, agrarianism uh, or the social dimension of the revolution becomes much more important than might have been accepted up to now. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And then a few passed into private ownership, and that particularly becomes the case in the in the in in more latter years, when uh, the new wealth of Ireland buy up many of these historic houses and and uh, restore them um, uh, in in some degree of of splendor. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. I guess that every single case that we're talking about here perhaps had different motivations and uh, different contributing factors involved. I wonder if you might be able to give us a case study that might kind of illuminate this for us a bit. I think it, it's very important to state at the outset that any one house could be burned for a variety of different reasons. Some buried in the historical past, some in the events of 1917 to 23, or some for a mix of both, right? Uh, at the most fundamental level, the War of Independence in Ireland is a guerrilla war, and it's characterized by reprisals and counter-reprisals. So when, for example, the Black and Tans or the Auxiliaries, the Crown Forces in Ireland, when they burn villages and towns such as Balbriggan or Trim or Cork, their retaliation in the form of, of burning country houses or dismantling symbols of imperialism in Ireland is, is, is inevitable. Of course, Ireland in the 1920s is no different to, let's say, New York in, in, in the 1770s, where in both cases, you know, this, this, this lust for revenge or recrimination is, is enough to unleash uh, an orgy of, of, of arson. Let's say we take the case of My Drum Castle in County Westmead, June 1921. Colonel Thomas Lambert, who was the commanding officer of the 13th Brigade in Atlone, was killed in an IRA ambush uh, near a, a village called Glasson. And in retaliation that night, four lorry loads of black and tans, they went on a rampage of revenge in that crockery village, which just was just across the county border in Roscommon. And they burned 15 houses. They followed up by burning five farmhouses at Cousin. So now, it's counter-reprisal time, so to speak. And at around 3 a.m. on the morning of the 3rd of July, the IRA, the local IRA, arrived at Maidrum uh, Castle. And IRA veterans later claimed that it was chosen because of Lord Castlemaine's past actions as landlord and the fact that he was a unionist and a staunch uh, loyalist. The IRA leader, Thomas Costello, informed Lady Castlemaine on the night that the house was being burned as a counter-reprisal for what had happened in Cousin and and Crockery um, in the nights uh, before that. So, I mean, that would seem to be the most obvious reason. But then we have got to ask ourselves the question, I mean, were there also ulterior motives, uh, possibly linked, for example, to local agrarian agitation? And... What the IRA leader Thomas Costello didn't mention in his Bureau of Military History witness statement was that he and two of his brothers had been actively involved in agrarian agitation in the lead up to the burning. And the burning itself was not the end of the intimidation of Lord Castlemaine and his family. And historian Eugene Dunn has concluded that this was all part of, of an orchestrated campaign of intimidation to force Castlemaine to leave the Atlone area for good. And by that time, Coslo, in fact, the IRA leader, had been had been one of those who had managed to get his hands on uh, some of the domain lands, though it's possible that it seems that he was later rousted by the Free State government. 
where in 1924, Lord Castlemaine sells his domain and whatever untended lands he had left to the Irish Land Commission, which is then divided up amongst the small uneconomic holders in the locality. So what was quite obviously um, a case of a house being burned as a counter-reprisal by the IRA also has this complex backdrop to it that those who were involved were also, you know, agrarian agitators um, and, and, and people who uh, looked towards the redistribution of these lands that landlords had continued to hold on to. And I think that Moydrum is a really interesting case because, as you mentioned there, the lady of the house, Lady Castlemaine, she was warned that her house was going to be burnt and allowed to take a few objects from it, if I'm correct. I'm I'm interested in how these burnings were carried out because they weren't intended to lead to loss of life generally, were they? No, I mean, I think if anything, what what, what marks out uh, the uh, Irish revolutionaries' attitudes towards the aristocracy is the fact that they, they, they practice such restraint. I mean, especially in, in comparison to the revolutionary experience of aristocrats across Europe, uh, from the Russian Revolution in 1917 right up to the, the Romanian experience in the, 19, in the 1980s. So there are certainly cases of families who were physically intimidated and physically assaulted, but they're relatively mild in comparison. And generally speaking, what the owners tend to talk about afterwards is that uh, the IRA had behaved rather courteously towards them. I mean, the Earl of Mayo, after his house at Palmerston was burned, he said that the raiders had behaved courteously and they had granted him time to remove some of his more valuable paintings. Sir John Dillon of Lismullen and Mead, he referred to the raiders as courteous arsonists. And again, he said that they'd helped him to remove some of his pictures and plate. Lady Louisa Bagwell of Marfield said that the raiders offered no personal violence and again, allowed family remove personal belongings. And going back to your question with regard to Lady Castlemaine, she, I think she was told originally that it had about 15 minutes to clear out whatever they could. And she pleaded for more time to remove uh, valuables. And she wasn't only granted this, uh, but the IRA leader also uh, allegedly um, allocated 10 men to help her. He later claimed to have heard that, that, that Lady Castlemaine informed the military that the men who burned the castle were gentlemen and that they behaved as such. So some time, in other words, is given for these families to remove some of their valuables and their contents. Of course, in the, in the, in the scurry then which, which ensues, it's very difficult for them to decide what's going to be saved and what's not going to be saved. And actually what you end up with is yeah, probably what might be described as bric-a-brac on the front lawn at dawn when everything becomes um, clear as to what, what has been saved and what hasn't. It must have been quite an extraordinary scene, an extraordinary thing to witness. These spectacular houses being burned, like you say, with all the bric-a-brac on the lawn and the family watching. Yes. Um, and I mean, the attacks themselves were, were hardly sporadic. I mean, there had to be some planning involved. In the case of my drum, the raiders knew, for example, that Lord Castlemaine wasn't going to be present on the night because of inside information from the main workers who were related to the local IRA. So when they arrive, when the gang of uh, men arrive, they have with them uh, gallons of, of 
paraphernalia. Uh, they have sledges with them in case they need to break in the front door or, for that matter, gain access any, anywhere else. When they do get in, um, they tell Lady Castlemaine why they're there. The uh, raiders then will have gone from room to room, piling the furniture into the centre of the rooms, dousing it then in paraffin. They broke the windows, they took slates off the roof in order to fan the flames. So what you had then was usually a raging inferno within minutes. Now, the estate firefighting equipment was useless, um, and anything else that was better was too far away to make it there in time to be, of, again, of, of, of any use. If if we were to think about this from purely an architectural or an art history perspective, what would some of the greatest losses in this period be? Uh, probably uh, one of the, the 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 most outstanding losses would be Summerhill in County in County Mead. Now this was. Um, probably one of the largest houses built in Ireland. It was about 300 feet long, I think. Definitely one of Ireland's grandest houses, built in the early 1730s in the manner of the Renaissance palaces in in, in Rome, which was a treatment that was very unusual in Ireland. And that was born on the 4th of February 1921 because a rumour went around that the Crown forces were going to occupy it, commandeer it and occupy it as a barracks. And the local IRA decided that that couldn't happen. It commanded a very strategic position located on a ground, uh, commanding one of the one of the routes to the west. So that definitely um, a house that was described as having been reduced to a mass of blackened ruins would have been a significant loss. So would Mitchellstown Castle in Cork, which was burned during the Civil War by anti-treatyites who had occupied it and as they were leaving decided to actually um, uh, destroy it. And again, this would have been the largest neo-Gothic castle in, in the country. Then within the houses themselves, I mean, I mean, this again is, is something that requires a great deal more attention. Because first of all, it should be said that many of the houses had been emptied of their contents before they were burned because uh, owners uh, suspected or feared what was going to actually happen. But there's no question that as well as that, you know, valuable works of art were destroyed. Great collections of, of silver were destroyed. Uh, great collections of, of, of Irish furniture were destroyed. Um, not to mention, of course, the magnificent uh, interior embellishments, the, the, the stucco work and, 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 every, and everything else. So we'll never truly, I, I believe, know what exactly was lost. And part of the reason for that, of course, is the owners kept very poor inventories. You mentioned earlier that after Moydrum Castle was burned, the castle mains essentially shut up shop not long after and left Ireland. Was that quite a common thing for the owners of these burned and ruined properties? Or did many people attempt to rebuild um, their houses or stay in Ireland? Yes. Uh, I mean, again, it's it's a mix of both. Um, but uh, I, I think it's safe to say that the majority of them did not come back um, to Ireland and, and rebuild their houses. Now, part of the reason for that is the compensation that was available to them. So first of all, owners were unable to claim under insurance policies because they were not covered against riot and civil commotion. Secondly, the level of compensation that was paid to them 
as opposed to the original claims made. Um, there, there was no comparison. I mean, they probably received, roughly speaking, 20 to 25% in compensation on what they claimed. Um, and that's particularly true in the case of the houses that were burned during the War of Independence. Because both governments, you know, realizing the extent of the claims that were going to be submitted. So remember, it's not just big houses. I mean, you you know, towns, villages, farmhouses, you have injuries to people, injuries to cattle. I mean, you've tens of thousands of applications for uh, compensation. So they're never going to get as much as would allow them, obviously, to rebuild the house either in its original grandeur or, of course, then thereafter then to, to, um, to furnish it and, and, and so on. So a lot of them, therefore, didn't rebuild. Now, in relation to compensation that was paid under the Free State Compensation Act or the Property Compensation Act passed in 1923, there was a, a stipulation that compensation would be payable only upon the fulfillment of certain conditions that the court might impose. And these were either, the court might impose that the house would be wholly built on the original site, or it would be partially reinstated, right? So you do have uh, owners such as Sir Thomas Esmond at Ballinastra, you have Lord Donnelly at uh, Kilby, and they rebuild their houses uh, based on the compensation that they that they receive. But you have quite a few also who take the other option and they take reduced compensation, but they rebuild elsewhere. So Cork County Council, for example, demanded that the compensation that was to be paid to Lady Ardalone for the burning of McCroom Castle had to be expended on the erection of dwelling houses suitable to the requirement of the people of the uh, the local town. Charles Warden of Derry Quinn in Kerry, he sold his compensation decree to Dublin County Council, which you could do, uh, for them to build 26 houses on Griffith Avenue. And J.M. Wilson from Curry Gran in Longford, he claimed 59000 for the burning of Curry Grand, but he was awarded only 12000 So instead, what he did was he built several villas in, uh, in, in Dunleary. So in, in a sense, you therefore have you know, the changing of the Irish physical landscape in, in, in one place, the disappearance of the country house, the disappearance of the domain and the design landscape. And then you have the building of houses in, 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 in for example, the Dublin suburbs, right? So you have uh, urban growth that results from the compensation played to country house owners. And what's the position of Ireland's country houses today? Do a lot of these ruins remain? Yes, I mean the country is dotted with 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 hundreds of of, of ruins of country houses, but the point uh, that that's that's really important is that while three hundred houses or so are burned during the revolutionary period, nineteen twenty to twenty three, and that's not nearly as detrimental as the fallout from the uh, economic crisis of the 20s and the 30s, so that as a result of economic decline, as a result of rising tax rates, 
as a result of rising local government rates in, in, in Ireland, and to an extent, political apathy towards these houses and their survival. I mean, hundreds upon hundreds more uh, disappear from the 1920s through to, um, well, through to the present day, you, you, you could say. You also have houses that um, survived initially in the 1920s, but because of the passing of a land act by the Free State Government in 1923 and afterwards, the government was given the power to compulsorily acquire domain and untenanted lands for the relief of local congestion. In other words, to build up small, uneconomic and unviable farms. So they were stripped of whatever land that they had left. And without these land banks, the, the big houses themselves became totally unviable. And they passed over to the Irish uh, Land Commission. And that state body, when it took them over, it had no deliberate policy to demolish them. But because they could do nothing else with them, they couldn't sell them. There was no market for them. They had no option. And again, you know, dozens, if not more, of houses are demolished by the Land Commission. And the salvage is used then for the building of local roads, sometimes for the building of power stations, sometimes for the building of agricultural laborers' cottages. There are other houses then that they assume new, new functions, right? They became schools, they became convents, they became monasteries, they became hotels and golf clubs and so on. And then a few passed into private ownership. And that particularly becomes the case in the in the in in more latter years, when uh, the new wealth of Ireland buy up many of these historic houses and and uh, restore them um, uh, in in some degree of of splendour. That was Terence Dooley. He's the author of Burning the Big House the story of the Irish country house in a time of war and revolution. That's out now, published by Yale. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.